from understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till. She makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a brand new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm so excited that you are here with me. We're going to talk about personal finance. We're going to talk about financial wellness. We're going to talk about mortgages, right? The biggest topic around any dinner table, any dinner party I go to, everybody wants to talk about real estate prices, interest rates, cost of living, because it's impacting us everywhere, whether we're living paycheck to paycheck, whether we are financially stable, it doesn't matter. All these things are still a big topic of conversation because everything has changed so dramatically in the last 18 months. Currently, our overnight interest rate is 5%, and that's up from 0.25% just in March of 2022. So in less than a year and a half, we saw interest rates rise 475 basis points. And that's having a big impact on how much we can afford because mortgages make up a big chunk of our paycheck for those of us who own homes. And if you had a variable rate mortgage, more of your money continues to go towards making those mortgage payments. And even if you have a fixed rate mortgage, I talk a lot about this on the program, you smug homeowners who are so proud of yourselves that you got into this fixed rate situation and you haven't been paying making these bigger payments, your time is coming next year and into 2025. It's expected that the majority of fixed rate mortgages are going to come up for renewal. A couple of reasons why they're saying that. One is that there was a real estate boom right after the pandemic started, right? So interest rates were cut to the lowest level we had seen in two decades. A lot of people went out there and bought homes because money was cheap. And those mortgages are now coming up for renewal. So if you'd gone fixed, you might have had a fixed rate anywhere from, can you get this, one and a half to two and a half, maybe 3%. A lot of those mortgages will be coming up for renewal. And what's the new interest rate? 6% and higher. So if you are in a situation where you feel like you may not be able to afford your mortgage payments, you need to talk to your bank right now. You need to speak to your mortgage broker to talk about options that are available to you so that you don't have to sell your home because that's the worst thing that could happen, right? Is that your home becomes unaffordable um, even though you have been making those payments for five years. You're going to lose a lot of money in real estate costs, in legal fees, and you will not be selling your home for that Uh, price that you bought it for because home values have come down in the last two years. So, or maybe close to what you bought it for. So you won't even be making much on your investment. Uh, This week we heard that six provinces have raised their minimum wage in order to uh, deal with the cost of living crisis. Now this was already in the works. It's not like all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, life is getting more expensive. Let's raise, uh, let's raise our minimum wage. Uh, this was already in the works, but it is of course being spun by the governments as a way to deal with uh, cost of living and the fact that everything is getting more expensive. Now, I am not going to poo-poo on any government raising minimum wage. That is a good thing, but they haven't gone even close to how far they need to go. Ontario, for example, is raising its minimum wage to $16.55 an hour. Living of wage, living wage advocates, so those people who say, this is how much money you would need to live a basic lifestyle in Ontario, and even more so in greater Toronto area, is $23 an hour. That's a basic lifestyle, right? So that's a one-bedroom apartment in a kind of okay area, not going on very many vacations or going out for dinner, not being able to save much for your future. That's just getting by $23 an hour. And $16.55 is where we're at with minimum wage right now. And this is after 
the government paused its minimum wage increase when it first took power. So this is something that has been a delayed response, absolutely, and it hasn't gone far enough. Manitoba, minimum wage, $15.30. Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, Labrador, $15. And here's the one that really makes me sad, Saskatchewan, their minimum wage, $14 an hour. Even in a province like Saskatchewan, where the cost of living is lower compared to the rest of Canada, living wage experts say that you need about $17 an hour to live a basic lifestyle. So they have not come up enough as well. The highest minimum wage right now is in the Yukon, uh, where uh, minimum wage there is close to $17 an hour. So they did not raise their uh, minimum wage, neither did British Columbia, neither did Alberta, which they came under some fire for not doing that. Uh, Quebec as well did not raise uh, minimum wage, neither did New Brunswick or either of the territories, or uh, any of the territories rather. Um, but it is good news that they're raising the minimum wage. There's two problems from my point of view about minimum wage, that there is this understanding or this thinking that minimum wage jobs are held by young people who live at home, right? So they're at gro they're grocery store clerks or they're summer jobs or they're jobs that people do part-time and they're not jobs where families rely on that income in order to, 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 to eat, to, do, to live life. So if you're a newcomer to Canada and you take one of these minimum wage jobs, you may be working two jobs a week in order to just make ends meet. And so a lot of advocates say that, yes, this is good. It's a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done. We will be talking about, uh, after the break, about financial wellness in Canada, a new survey that shows that we're actually worse off than we first thought. So that's not good. And we'll talk about the reasons why that is. And then later in the program, we're going to talk about buying a home with friends. So because of real estate prices, even though they have come down somewhat in the last few months because of interest rates being higher and home prices are coming down in response to that, uh, real estate prices are still very high. And that means that a lot of people are finding creative ways to get onto the property ladder. Currently, in August 2023, the average sale of a home in Canada was $650,000. That that's according to the Canadian Real Estate Board. So that's money that a lot of people can't afford. And then, of course, if you get into bigger cities, you get into detached homes, it depends on the area. That number is actually not really representative of what's really happening in a lot of city centers across this country. So we will be talking about group mortgages, the things to consider if you are going to be buying a home with your pal or with your friends, um, all the different legal documents that need to be in place before you get into that transaction, and how to set yourself up for success. Yes, you're on the property ladder, but what are you really trying to do by buying this home with someone else? And what's the exit plan? We'll be having that conversation later on in the program. But we are going to take a quick break. After the break, we are talking financial wellness and how a new survey shows the financial stress Canadians are feeling is actually more intense than previously predicted. I'm Rabina Ahmad Huck, and this is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. This week, six Canadian provinces raised their minimum wage, they say, to deal with the cost of living crisis. This comes as more Canadians say they are living paycheck to paycheck in order to afford all their bills. The National Payroll Institute's annual survey of working Canadians shows the financial stress of Canadians is actually more intense than previously predicted, and they say it could get worse. To talk about the results of this survey and what we can do right now for our finances, we are joined by Peter Zanatakis. He's president of the National Payroll Institute. Hi, Peter. Thank you. 
Peter, um, can you tell us what your analysis revealed about Canadians' level of financial wellness right now? Uh, a financial stress storm has really picked up uh, significant strength, and it's uh, far more intense than uh, we uh, we predicted. Uh, this kind of continues from a trend that began in 2021, uh, following the an, an improvement in in 2020 when pandemic lockdowns actually forced Canadians to save, which uh, appeared to be a bit of uh, the calm before the storm. But this year's research indicates that uh, some immediate action is required to uh, you know, protect working Canadians from further intensifying financial stress. And, and the key drivers of this financial deterioration uh, has been uh, tied to you know, increased interest rates, inflation, and the high cost of living, which are all combining to really severely impact uh, working Canadians' uh, financial wellness. Yeah, I mean, those are things that are impacting all of us. And I can only imagine someone who's already living paycheck to paycheck, already not able to save for their future, how that can just exacerbate what what else has been going on in their lives. How has the threat of a possible recession, which we keep hearing about, how is that affecting Canadians' uh, financial stress and, and how they feel about their money right now? Well, we're in a in a really good labor market right now, uh, and um, and and we're seeing that twenty uh, percent uh, increase in financial stress. So, um, if um, a recession uh, is deeper than anticipated, if heaven forbid people are losing their jobs or one of the incomes in the household, um, you know, all of a sudden uh, disappears, uh, that's going to put a tremendous amount more stress uh on uh, on people's uh, finances and and it really is centered around a number of key factors uh such as debt uh spending habits and uh, your ability to save and those are core determinants so um it's something that uh, working canadians really need to zero in on now um in order not to in order to get out of that financial stress category uh, and and potentially uh, shield themselves uh, should uh, the economy uh, deteriorate. Now, you mentioned that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were saving more money because we were forced to stay home. We didn't have much money, much places to actually spend that cash and saving rate, savings rates actually went up to the highest we'd ever seen really since records were being kept on that. Um, but is there anything else about the pandemic in particular, the anxiety, uh, the job losses that really is uh, contributing to where we find ourselves now financially? The, the interesting thing about the, 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 the first year of the pandemic was that, uh, you know, people were, were saving more, as you mentioned. And, and, you know, it was things like, you know, commuting costs, uh, dry cleaning. Uh, a lot of us were working from home. And, and so when you're working from home, uh, the paycheck is still coming. Um, and there's uh, people aren't flying to, on vacations. They're not going to restaurants. It really did create a situation where we saw the level of financial stress go down, and and that was really on the on the spending side of things. But but really, there's other determinants as well. Um, it it was really is about your 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 debt control, and and are you overwhelmed by debt? So I think we did actually see debt increasing significantly over this period of time because people during the pandemic also started to renovate their homes or buy mm. bigger homes uh, and do uh, other things that um, actually added to their uh, debt load. And now with the interest rates increasing and the cost of living, that's a double whammy. 
Peter Zanatakis is president of the National Payroll Institute. Uh, Peter, this week we heard that six provinces have raised their minimum wage. In Ontario, for example, minimum wage is now uh, $16.55. That's actually a 6.8% increase. But a lot of living wage experts are saying that's nearly not enough. Can you just give us your opinion about these these minimum wage increases and if they may make a difference, uh, especially when it comes to people who are feeling financial stress? Governments are increasing um, uh, minimum wages, uh, but also employers have also increased wages in this really, really tight labor market. So you are seeing um, uh, wages going up um, quite significantly uh, across the board. Um, You know, while everyone wants to make more and in some cases you feel that it's going to make a difference and in some cases and often in the short run, it does make a difference. But but being financially stressed is not determined by your income bracket. In fact, those making over $100,000 comprised one third of uh, the financially stressed category uh, of working Canadians. Um, so it really is um, uh, an element of, of the of the household finance that's going to make a, a, a bigger impact. And that's really around the behaviors in terms of dealing with your debt, your spending habits, and your savings. And if you've been doing those things all along, you'll likely be in a coping or comfortable situation. If you're in the stressed category, uh, those are things that you're going to need to really focus in on. And so it's not uh, uh, income uh, increases uh, and wage increases is not the panacea for moving out of this financial stress situation. I think the saying is, it's not your salary that makes you rich, it's your spending habits. And I think this speaks exactly to what you're saying, uh, that if you're making, you know, even a million dollars, you're spending the whole million, you're still at zero, right, at the end of the year, um, compared to someone making 50000 but is able to put away five or six thousand dollars of that money somehow uh, they're that much wealthier because they haven't spent it especially on consumable items like vacations and dinners and things that you have nothing to show for after uh, you mentioned there uh, some things that we can do proactively to feel better about our money what are some ways you know you mentioned debt is there other things that we can do to just make ourselves feel better about our finances right now especially if we're feeling uh, stressed about them well, you hit it on the you hit the nail on the head in terms of spending. Uh, you know, Canadians are going to have to make some tough to cho- choices on uh, discretionary spending. Uh, it's tough to tell someone to lower your spending on essentials, um, but uh, one of the best ways uh, for Canadians to positively affect their financial wellness is by reducing their reliance on debt and consolidating the sources of debt because those in financial the stress category um, have uh, four times the sources of debt. So debt consolidation, there are services out there that can help you manage that. And so that instead of, you know, dealing with the, the car loan and the line of credit and, and the credit card, you're, you're, you're consolidating those, uh, those um, uh, debt uh, sources and, and are able to uh, manage it uh, a little bit more uh, effectively. So that's certainly something that, uh, people should uh, zero in on, uh, especially if there's they're living paycheck to paycheck and, and they're spending everything or hopefully not beyond their paycheck uh, using this debt. It's really difficult for some individuals, especially who have grown up in the last 20 years. So if you became an adult, say in 2001, 2002, that's when you turned 18, you basically had 20 years of almost a bull market, especially except for 2008, 2009, 
real estate prices have continued to rise. Interest rates have continued to come down. Um, can, can you talk to me a little bit about how much unlearning we have to do with some of the bad habits we've picked up um, simply because we haven't had to think about saving or, or worrying too much about how, how much our debt load is costing us? Yeah, it's uh, it's all about the behavior, uh, and it's about uh, you know uh, doing a household budget, and it's about uh, managing your spending, uh, not living beyond your means. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, the the number of people living paycheck to paycheck has increased significantly, and you know within the financially stressed category, um, it's over half of them are living paycheck to paycheck. So. It is um, something that is difficult to break, um, but it is a behavioral aspect. Uh, I mean, those factors outside of your control, like inflation and the cost of living uh, and interest rates, we don't have control over that. But what we do have control over is our uh, ability to manage our finances effectively. And it, you have to start somewhere. And if you don't, you're going to continue to spiral down. And so this is something that uh, you know uh, people need to really uh, focus in on and and make some of those tough decisions. For someone who's listening, who who really doesn't want to deal with the fact that they're in more debt that they can afford, they're worried about making their mortgage payments, worried about ma- paying their bills. What are the long term impacts of just having financial stress uh, in your life? Well, financial stress is is creating real emotional stress on people. Uh, alarmingly, um, half of the financially stressed Canadians admit that they they actually feel more isolated due to the rising cost of living. And 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 not only that, um, they're unable to keep uh, the growing stress from affecting those closest to them. With you know uh, half of them sharing that their financial stress has been felt by the ones that they they love. And so this is actually um, quite alarming uh, that it's now spilling over into sort of emotional stress. And and uh, the other the other interesting finding was that uh, one in five um, uh, took personal sick days from work uh, to 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 handle or try to deal with their financial stress. So these are having real impacts at the household and real uh, impacts within the workplace and it's it's really starting to show and it's really starting to uh, impact people in ways that uh, we certainly haven't seen uh, since we uh, you know launched our research uh, um, a number of years ago. Peter, thank you so much for making time for us today and telling us about the the results of this survey and how important it is if you are dealing with financial stress, which uh, many of us are, uh, to, to find ways to alleviate it and uh, to get that under control. Thank you. That's Peter Zanatakis. He's president of the National Payroll Institute. When we come back, buying a house with friends seems like an affordable way to get on the property ladder, but there are things to consider before you make the leap to group ownership. I'm Rabina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. Buying a home in Canada continues to feel out of reach for many first-time home buyers. Interest rates have put downward pressure on prices, but they have also made money more expensive. One innovative way young people especially are using to buy a home is going in on the deal with a number of friends. After all, pooling your resources can make your money go further. But there is a lot to consider before you buy a house with friends. To talk about this and more, we are joined by Leah Zlatkin. She is the COO of Mortgage Outlet. Hi, Leah. 
Hi, Rubina. How are you? I'm great. You know, a lot of people, especially first time home buyers, are making the decision to get into a real estate transaction as a group. So maybe one couple that, you know, really gets along with another couple. They think, well, let's buy a house in this big city. And then when we sell, we can both take our share and, and buy our individual homes. What is the first thing you would tell a group of people who are thinking of getting into a real estate deal like this? It's a terrific idea in theory. And so you want to make sure that you're setting the groundwork up properly to make sure that you can be a long-term success together. The first part of this starts with understanding everybody's personal finances. If one of the four people has had a bankruptcy or has some sort of credit issue, that could really affect the entire group of four. So you want to make sure that number one, everybody's coming from a relatively level place, um, whether it be job stability wise or job history wise or credit history, as long as everybody's sort of coming from a level playing field or everybody understands each other's nuances, then you're all set. The next thing that you want to do is you certainly want to talk to a lawyer about what happens if, and you want to work out all the different scenarios. So let's say two couples buy a home together. What happens if one of the two couples or one of the four people gets transferred to another city and they need to move out of the city where you've purchased the home. What happens if one of the couples have a child and now the home is not big enough for five people? What happens if, God forbid, there's a death and somebody passes away? How do the other people deal with that situation and how do you navigate it? Many times when people are looking at buying with a group or with more than yourself and a spouse, uh, you would look at building a contract ahead of time and in advance that works out all the nuances of the what if scenarios. And as long as you've really worked out all the what if scenarios, you should be in a good position to then start this journey of home ownership as a group. In your experience, is this something that people are more and more considering because it is just so expensive to go it alone or go maybe just with uh, you and your spouse with two incomes to buy a house, say, for example, in downtown Vancouver or Toronto or one of the more expensive places across the country? We do see it intergenerationally. So you will sometimes see, you know, mom and dad buying a house with newly married son and daughter-in-law or you know, something along those lines, it's less common amongst people that are all one generational cohort who are not related. Siblings often buy together. That's something that we do often see. Um, but in terms of like two couples who are not related to each other, buying a home together, it's not as common. Uh, we also don't necessarily see as many situations where groups of friends are buying together, but I have had clients reach out to me in the past where they are a group of four friends that are looking to buy together. None of those have really come to fruition because by the time you start talking of, about all the what if scenarios, what if one of us finds a spouse? What if one of us gets married? What if one of us has a kid? those kind of contingencies break things down and people realize, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to buy XYZ person out in three years because I'm not going to be in a financial place to be able to buy them out. Um, and those, those have not really actually come to fruition, but certainly intergenerationally, we do see people buying as groups. So mom and dad and, you know, son and daughter-in-law or some, some factor of that. And we often see siblings buying together. So, three siblings might buy a home together um, and all plan on living in it until a point where, you know, one of them gets married and then moves out or things like that.
Yeah, um, I bought a, a place with my brother back in 2005 in Toronto. We own it still to today. Uh, it was the same kind of situation where at the time it felt like the market was very expensive and what we could afford individually didn't seem that impressive, but what we could afford together uh, was, you know, we could afford something substan substantial. And, but the number one thing is that we had a really great relationship. We still have a great relationship. So I think that's really important, even among siblings, if there is, you know, sibling rivalry or there's other issues, maybe that's not the right person for you to go into business with. Yeah, and you have to view it, you know, a purchase of a home is very much like a marriage. And I know it sounds weird saying that with siblings, but, you know, family is tight and family will stick together and family will help each other out. So if you're buying with siblings or you're buying with parents, you're all going to try and do what's in everybody's best interest and what's in the best interest of the entire family unit. When you're buying with friends or people who you're not related to, sometimes those lines are a little bit muddied and it may be hard harder to focus on the overall goal for everyone's happiness as opposed to individual happiness. And so I certainly think that buying with siblings and, you know, even keeping that property as a rental property, once one of you decides to move out and, you know, start your own family, that's a really beneficial way to get into the market, get a foothold in there and start making money off of real estate in the future. Talk to me a little bit about joint tenancy and tenants in common, because I think that people who are buying in a group really need to know exactly the kind of agreement they're getting into. Um, so joint tenancy and tenancy in common is a little bit of a, a complicated, a complicated um, endeavor. Um, let me talk to you about what the difference is. So if a tenants in common co-owner dies, the ownership does not automatically go to the other owners. Their share of the property becomes part of their estate. If a joint tenant co-owner dies, the surviving co-owners inherit the deceased share of the property. But the difference is that in tenants in common, you actually have to purchase that ownership back. So effectively, in a tenants in common situation, if you were in this kind of situation with friends or roommates, technically their mom or dad or their sibling might now own the other part of the property. Whereas if you have a joint tenancy, you get their share of the property, which somebody who you're not related to might not actually want. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, what would you recommend in a group mortgage situation? What kind of contract should they make between between them? I would certainly talk to a real estate lawyer. And the reason why I revert to a real estate lawyer is everybody is a little bit different. In a situation where you have a tenants in common situation and you pass away, the property goes to somebody else. What if you're living four people in a house, one of the tenants passes away and the other three can't afford to buy that fourth guy out. And that fourth guy has passed the property on to his sibling who now needs to pay for a funeral and can't afford a funeral for his brother without selling that that piece of the property. Now all four of you kind of need to sell your house or figure out that you're going to be living with a net new person. It can be very complicated, which is why we we sort of say that you should set up parameters up front. You should talk to a real estate lawyer up front. You should understand all the what ifs. What if gentleman number one passes away? What if gentleman number one decides to move and gets married? What if this, that, and the other. And as long as you've worked out all those contingencies and you understand what's going to happen in every single situation and you're all comfortable with that, then you're going to be set up for success. The challenge is that having four people 
all comfortable with every single algorithm that you could possibly have in terms of a what if scenario is not the easiest thing to do. Not everybody's going to be happy with every single different solution or, or permutation. We're speaking to Leah Zlatkin. She is COO of Mortgage Outlet. Uh, Leah, the mortgage landscape has changed dramatically, to put it lightly, in the last 18 months. Uh, a lot of fixed rate mortgages are coming up for renewal in the next 18 months to two years. What is your advice for someone who's worried about their payments um, going up beyond what they can afford? Yeah, so I think that there's two camps on this one. You're going to want to take a look at whether you have a fixed rate mortgage and you have a true fixed rate mortgage. So if you have a true fixed rate mortgage, your mortgage rate is somewhere between 1.8 and 2.35, depending on when you actually got that mortgage five years ago. Um, if you're coming up for renewal right now, you want to make sure that number one, you can afford the new payments at 6%, which is approximately what it is in the marketplace right now. And if you can't, you need to engage your bank or a mortgage broker to understand what can be done. In many of these cases, what can be done is a large lump sum payment into your mortgage or perhaps re-amortizing your property. So if you only have 20 years left on your mortgage, you might up that to 25 years to re-amortize it out so that your payment amounts are smaller when you get to your renewal. The other thing that you might want to start considering is whether you in fact have had a major financial change since the last time you qualified for your mortgage. If maybe spouse number two has decided to stay home with the kids and has left their full time job, maybe COVID, you know, changed your lives and you realize you want to spend more time with family and now you only have one working parent. Are you still going to qualify at a different lender at renewal time or are you still going to qualify at your existing lender at renewal time? If you don't think you're going to qualify at a different lender because you've spoken to a broker and you realize you're not going to qualify, your best interest is going to be to get the best renewal out of your existing bank that you can get and to sign it as soon as you can. So that's that's some of the factors to consider if you're on a true fixed rate mortgage. If you're on a variable rate mortgage where you've had static payments for the last few years, meaning you actually have a variable rate mortgage, but instead of your, your monthly payments going up, your length of amortization has, has gone out. For those people, you need to be very wary. You need to reach out to your bank and you need to understand what your current amortization looks like. You need to understand whether you can make prepayments right now and whether you can increase those payment amounts based on your current finances in order to start paying down more principal. And you need to understand how much of a balloon payment you may have at renewal. What a balloon payment is, is interest on interest that you haven't paid yet. Mm -hmm. And so some people may have a balloon payment at the end of their term, and they may need to pay out that large chunk of money to their existing lender to renew. Or should they decide to leave and go to a different lender, they may need to pay that lump sum of money. So you need to be engaging with your bank and your mortgage broker right now to understand what it looks like for you at renewal, and whether you can refinance if, if finances are tight. Would the bank be in touch with those people who have uh, extraordinary balloon payments that have to be made at the end of their term? Uh, would that be some communication that they're sending out or is that something that you have to inquire about? I mean, realistically, yes, banks should be reaching out to you, but there's a lot of different banks in Canada that do static payments and not all of them have the same communication policies. So 
if you have a static payment, it's in your best interest to protect yourself and reach out to your bank proactively to understand what your amortization looks like, whether you have any kind of balloon payment coming up and whether you've been paying down some of your principles. Some of our clients have been incredibly diligent and they have been making advanced payments on their mortgages. They've paid extra every month just because they want to make sure that they're covering principal. Um, and those are choices that those clients have individually made to make sure they're keeping up with those payments and keeping up with rising rates. Some clients have not been as diligent. And for those clients, they really need to make sure that they're proactive before their renewal. So that's not 10 days before your renewal. That's six months, nine months, a year before your renewal. You need to start looking into where you sit and where you're going to be at renewal time. Leah, this has been such a fascinating conversation. So much great information. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That's Leah Zlatkin. She's COO of Mortgage Outlet. Coming up, after watching a documentary about living longer, my family is dramatically changing the way we eat and it's having a positive impact on our pocketbook. I'll have more after the break. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina ahmed Hawk. Last month, I watched a documentary series on Netflix that has quite literally changed the way my family eats. It's called Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones, and it's uh, hosted by someone named Dan Butner, who has spent the majority of his life visiting areas around the world where people at a rate greater than anywhere else in the world live past 100. And the most amazing thing that he found was that people were living past 100 and they were living well. They were active. They were working. They were contributing to their community. Let's have a listen to a clip from the documentary, Live to 100 Secrets of the Blue Zones. I have found that most of what people think lead to a long, healthy life is misguided or just plain wrong. What if we could reverse engineer longevity? I spent the last 20 years trying to do just that. And I'm right there with Dan Butner. I want to know what it is about these communities that is making them live longer. So that's why I was so engrossed in it. And one of the commonalities of all the different communities, there was a lot of them. There was a lot of them. Community being one, right? That you have people around you that love you. Purpose being one. That you wake up in the morning and you have somewhere to go, something to do, something to, some task to fulfill. I think those are really important. But diet was beyond anything else the most important, right? What you eat really, really does matter. And a plant-based diet overwhelmingly was the diet that really led to people living longer, healthier, more vital lives. And so my family has really changed the way that we eat. We have more beans, we have more vegetables, uh, less meat, less eggs, all of these things I'm trying to really incorporate into my family's diet. We're not perfect. Absolutely, we're not you know, following the same uh, routine that we saw over and over again in this in this documentary where people ate meat less than five times a month. I can tell you that that is, you know, we eat meat more than five times a month, but we are edging towards a more plant-based diet. And the one thing I have found by eating this way is that I'm saving money. So I started doing a deeper dive. Now, I've always known that a plant-based diet is cheaper. Obviously, you know, 
meat is always cheaper. Uh, meat is always more expensive than beans. We know that. That's No one needs to convince me of that. I'm sure everybody who's listening is well aware of that. But I didn't realize how much cheaper. So eating a plant-based diet compared to a regular North American diet is 34% cheaper. Right away, you save 34% because you buy more beans, you buy more whole foods, you buy more grains, and they are all cheaper than meat. So for an example, and these are prices that I've looked up in my own community. I live in Southern Ontario, so there might be different in where, where you live. But just as an example, ribeye steak, first I'm going to start with the dramatic ones. Ribeye steak, $20 a pound. You can find it right now for $20 a pound in my, in my local grocery store. Beans for a pound, 95 cents. So immediately, I mean, that is 90% cheaper, right? More than 90% cheaper, 95% cheaper. Chicken breast, $4.99 a pound. Tofu, $1.97 a pound. So again, less than half the price. Pork side ribs, $6.49 a pound. If you want to buy the plant-based meat alternative, which you can cook like meat, it is $5.97 a pound. Still cheaper than the pork side ribs. And right now, pork is the cheapest protein you can buy, meat protein you can buy right now on the market. So it just gives you an idea by switching some of the things in your basket to plant-based, thinking about different things that you can eat as a family at dinner is going to save you money. Two things that I recommend that you do this weekend when you do, if you do, say you do a weekly shop. One, focus more on plants, vegetables, beans, that's going to save you money. Make a list. Making a list when you go to the grocery store automatically saves you money. You know, the cost of food is still up 6.8% year over year. That's the latest stats can numbers. And so people are still paying a lot more for many of those things. But if you can switch some of those foods to plant-based, not only will you do good things for your body, according to this documentary, you're going to live longer. <laughs> Dan Butner actually, in one of the interviews that I watched later said, I firmly believe that if everybody ate a cup of beans a day, we'd have add five to six years of our lives. So, you know, maybe we start eating a cup of beans a day. I mean, it can't hurt you, right? It can definitely not hurt you by eating more vegetables, legumes, and beans for sure. Depending on your dietary restrictions, some people can't eat certain things, but if you do not have any restrictions, it definitely is not going to hurt you to eat less meat and eat more of the vegetables and the beans and the other stuff that, that they're recommending. And it's going to help your pocketbook. So that's the the sort of uh, the message I wanted to send, that there are always ways that you can swap things out and save money. So it may seem like there is nowhere else for me left to cut. There's nowhere else left for me to save. This is one place I'm telling you, you can save money. And food makes up 15% of our household budget uh, during the year. And that is a huge chunk of change. So if we can cut a little bit that of that back, that is definitely going to put some money back in your pocket where you can find uh, money to do other things in your life. I really enjoyed our conversation today with Leah Zlatnik uh, talking about all the pros and cons of going into a group mortgage. Uh, there's a lot of things to consider, especially uh, the agreement that you make between you and your co-owners. Uh, you, you need to really have all those things hammered out before you go into that situation. Uh, Leah says it can be successful, but you just have to make sure that you're all on the same page and that you know when things change, that there are ways that you can anticipate how you're going to manage it. And especially like she mentioned there, if somebody dies, that's the big one, right? You really have to know 
the situation you would be in. And also speaking to Peter Zanatakis, president of the National Payroll Institute, about the financial stress that Canadians are feeling. More and more of us are feeling worse about our money. In fact, worse than we had originally predicted. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that cost of living continues to remain high, interest rates are remaining high, and Canadians are finding it harder and harder to get by on the salary that they are making. But Peter made a very good point, kind of speaks to my plant-based conversation that I just had, that uh, it's not necessary necessarily our salary that is going to make us feel financially well, it's our spending habits. And that is a very famous saying as well, that it's not our salary that makes us rich, it's our spending habits. Um, If you're making more money, you have to save more money. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to spend it on more consumable goods. If you make a million and spend a million, you still have zero. But if you make 100,000 and you're able to save 7,000, you've got that 7,000 in the bank that's building towards your future financial wellness, making you feel better, knowing that you've got some money on the side that you saved out of your income. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful program. Thanks so much to James Petrovic, our technical producer. Thanks to you, the listener. We will be back here same time, same channel. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.